0: Well, I hope everyone enjoyed their meditation this morning. Uh, I want to start by saying that I'm I'm very glad to be back here at a, at against the stream. For some of, for some of you came in uh, mm-hmm. a little little into the meditation. I had said that the last time I'd been here was on uh, New Year's Eve that morning. I, I gave a talk then, and I was I was very glad to to give that talk because. Many years ago I'd been at Against the Stream as, as a student and then to come back as, as a Dharma teacher and, and be able to mm-hmm. contribute on the other end of that was, was just so delightful and so I'm glad to be back again. And uh, I'm glad that we've chosen this way to spend our, our Sunday. We can be doing a whole lot of other things. Uh, last week I was speaking at my temple, the International Buddhist Meditation Center, and uh, because of the way the, the name sounds, I made a joke how we all could have been at the International House of Pancakes instead. And, you know, that seemed to have gone over pretty well. I got a couple chuckles. So, uh, as I was beginning to get ready to speak right now, I wanted to get more comfortable and started rolling up my sleeves and was going to undo the buttons of my shirt right here, my, my overshirt here. And then I realized that, first of all, I wouldn't really have a convenient place to put my microphone. But I also would have been showing my sweet Superman T-shirt. And, uh, and then I, I thought very quickly about how uh, these days Superman is a, is a bit boring for a lot of people. If, they, if they're even DC fans to begin with, they're usually uh, much more fond of, say, Batman, right? Uh, and I, thought, I was thinking back to uh, when I first began to like Superman. He's actually my, my favorite superhero, which a lot of, a lot of people scoff at. But I started liking Superman when I was about five years old, which, incidentally, is about the same age when I started wearing glasses. And uh, I think that might be part of the reason, because there was a superhero who wore glasses. And so, you know, at a time in my life when I was beginning to be teased, you know, being called four eyes and nerd and goggles and all this, there was this guy, Clark Kent, that would also get teased and ridiculed and be thought of as a nerd. and. No one really knew how awesome he was behind those glasses. And I think, you know, when you're that kind of kid, you know, you're, you're a little pudgy, kind of nerdy and everything. You're wearing the glasses. Uh, you, you seek out ways to, to feel empowered. Superheroes is definitely one way. Another one, and the, the topic for today, that I sought out was magic. And it, it's kind of an odd topic. You'll have to bear with me it will get into Buddhist teachings, but uh, my background along with Buddhism also delved pretty deeply into, into paganism and so what i 'm going to do is i 'm going to build on this concept of magic that I, did, that I was you know experimenting with in, in paganism and then s- and see how I can talk about the magic we might find on the Buddhist path A very different kind of magic so I first started delving into what might be called the supernatural, probably in third grade. Before then, I was not into books, not at all, not even kind of. In fact, I was even like in the slow readers group, like all the smart kids got to read in the morning, and then all the other kids like me had to read in the afternoon with the simpler books. But there was one weekend I was visiting my grandparents, and uh, we had to go to the grocery store, and you know they had all the, the paperbacks, all the cheap ones there. And I found this one book, and it's kind of embarrassing, but it was called The Little Vampire in Love. I don't know what it was about it that caught my interest. I think it was these cool little kid vampires on the cover, but I was into it. I just decided to turn to my grandpa and say, I I want to buy this book. And he says, really? Of course, this whole conversation was in Spanish. My grandfather is from, from Colombia. But... Yeah, he, I said I want this book. And he said, "Okay." And so that that evening that I was I was spending with them, you know, they were watching, I think it was Saturday, so it was probably Sábado Gigante on Canal 34, if you know. Univision, <laughs> yeah. And uh that's that's a big variety show with the host Don Francisco, a cool guy. And uh has all sorts of zany things going on. But I sat there and I started reading this book. And it was the first book I really got into. And it was all filled with vampires and magic. And I ended up finding out that it was a whole series of books, The Little Vampire. It's about this little kid, Tony, in England. And he ends up making, I think think it was England. It's definitely the UK. And he makes friends with this little vampire named, I think, Rudolph. Right, kind of a weird name. And uh, I became a, a little infatuated with one of the characters. It was actually Rudolph's sister, Anna. And in that particular book, she finally got her fangs. That was a big deal, guys. You don't you don't know. And uh, and so that was my my first taste of like supernatural stuff. And so I started reading a lot of books that delved with like you know dealt with sorcery and and magic and and wizards. And that seemed really cool too. Because I mean wizards. I mean they're they're like the most powerful nerd imaginable. They just sit around reading scrolls and books all the time, and they definitely need glasses. They're reading by candlelight. You know your eyes get tired. And so I I really got into these ideas. And I really wanted all this stuff to be real, because that seemed way cooler than the reality I was living in. And it's not that I had a bad life. You know, I was a kid living in the suburbs of Arcadia. My parents made a bunch of money. I had everything I could possibly want. And yet, even at that age, I could still feel some kind of dissatisfaction. And I think that's why a lot of us are called to Buddhism or any contemplative path anyway, it doesn't really matter what age in our life, at some point we start feeling this dissatisfaction with things. You know, what the Buddha would call Dukkha, you know, in, in Pali. And this dissatisfaction can settle in in everyone and anyone because it's the nature of Sangsada. And I didn't know any of that then, I just knew that I really wanted to be a wizard. I wanted magic powers, and I was watching martial arts movies, and Seeing them shoot energy stuff out of their hands, and I wanted that too. And I'd see that stuff, and I thought, hey, look at that. All these guys, these awesome warriors, are Buddhist, you know, because they would go to Buddhist temples and they'd do the stuff in the movies, and then they would totally kick ass for like the next half hour, hour of the movie. And that's, that was really cool to me because they were really powerful superheroes, but there was this spiritual component. And so I started delving into all of this stuff because I, I was really after that kind of power, the, the cool aspects of it, and, and, and I wanted that, that bit of escape. And I also liked the, the idea behind magic in that, in, say, paganism, you can change yourself and the world around you by doing certain things. You know, you want a little bit of this, you put a certain oil on a candle, you sprinkle some herbs around it, you light it. And stuff happens hopefully, right? And, uh, you know, I, I really can't speak to why others practice magic or what they get or don't get out of it. But I know that that for me, I really wanted to change my reality. And I wanted to change myself. You know, I felt really frumpy and and awkward and unloved. Part of that was because I got into girls really young and they were not even there yet. And so I felt really ignored and everything. And and so I, I could escape into fantasy and then I found out that like no, there there are people who, you know, try to make this a reality. They they try to practice some kind of magic that might be real. And uh and even even the, the East at the time was very mysticized. I mean, so, I mean, in the West, it's been that way for a couple hundred years, if not longer. But uh, when I was a kid, you know, uh, there, there was still the big ninja craze and a lot of stuff about mysticism in the East. And um, I ended up picking up this, this one book called Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And some of you may have read that. And that one, man, that has everything in there. Well, there's meditation, there's Tai Chi, there's yoga. And it was written in a time when a lot of that stuff wasn't very well known. I think it was, the book was written maybe in the 70s, maybe early 80s, but I found it much later. And that book was just so cool to me because here was this awesome teacher, which the main character, Dan, names Socrates, because the teacher is so mysterious, he won't tell him his name. So he has to create one for him and he chooses Socrates. And Socrates is the the coolest mixture of, like, Mr. Miyagi and, like, Obi-Wan Kenobi and and all sorts of really cool stuff. And there's magic and, like, visions. And I I got super into it. And it it was a book that definitely made meditation seem really cool. When uh, there's probably not too many ways to make meditation, which from the outside looks like sitting down and doing nothing for, like, half an hour, hour to stretch... Seem cool to a twelve-year-old, you know that you don't really want to do that when you're around that age because it seems really, really boring. But if if there's this promise of deeper mysteries and, and deeper knowledge, then there's something to pursue there. And I remember uh, my parents being really bewildered by this, especially when I got to a point in in the book of Way of the Peaceful Warrior where uh, Dan goes on like a like a seven-day fast where he only has like fruit juice and water and tea and stuff. And uh, I think at that point, when I, when I read that, I thought, I, I, I can do that, too. And my parents were pretty skeptical, and I, I think they let, they let me get away with it for about four days. And then they said, no, you really need to eat something. This is kind of silly. You're, you're still growing. But, but I, was, I was that invested in that kind of stuff, you know, wanting to make these things real, these things that I was reading in books. Magic, uh, even more deeply, you know. I at, at the time this was this was in the '90s, so uh, Wicca was becoming a little more mainstream. You could find books on Wicca like at Hot Topic and like other book. You know, there was like bookstores and stuff like that, and that was interesting too because then you could do all these really cool things. And uh, I did that for a long, a long while alongside meditation because. I really couldn't bear to to live in a world without magic. And I, I, I so desperately wanted it. But over time, uh, I began to see that there might be a different kind of, of magic in the world. You know, as I kept practicing various religions and reading a lot of fantasy and, and fiction, uh, I... I I kept at the Buddhism and all those other things began to to hold my interests less and less because I was finding something more tangible in, in Buddhism, maybe, in that in the Eightfold Path, I was seeing something that looked less like wishing for things to be different and performing rituals and ceremonies for things to be different. And there was this big emphasis on uh, self-reliance, self-responsibility. You know, when we look at the Eightfold Path, we see sila, samadhi, and panya, right? So we have these actions that we can take. Sila is conduct. So in the Eightfold Path, we have, you know, right speech, right action, right livelihood. In samadhi, we have right effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And in punya we have right view and right thought. And so rather than, than doing these things in the world with various objects and various correspondences and, and all of that, I, I began to get in touch with my body, with, with what the, the Buddha would refer to as the, the six sense doors. So we talk about the the eyes, the ears, the mouth, the nose, the skin, the mind, all of these senses, you know because in Buddhism, the mind is also a sense door, and all of the various things they come into contact with, you know sight, you know touch, taste, smell, you know thought these mental objects are also th- something to interact with the mind, the sense of mind, and that was something that I could actually interact with, something that I could actually. Touch and and handle and and see results. So I, I think that in Buddhism there might be a much m- more meaningful kind of magic to me, a kind of of alchemy, you know, something that that transmutes. You know, in alchemy, where you know the the idea is to transmute things from one substance to another, and it's supposed to correspond to like something spiritual where you can do these spiritual transmutations change one substance to another? And I think Buddhism does that because we have greed and we can transmute greed into generosity. And we have hatred and we can transmute hatred into kindness. And we have delusion and ignorance and we can transmute that into wisdom. And not only that, but we see that, at least I've seen that in myself and others, that when the conditions are right, when we've laid down the, the right foundations, these results that you know I was talking about, greed into, into you know, generosity, hatred into kindness, delusion into wisdom, those changes can seem effortless when the conditions are right, when we've done the work. The beauty of skillful or right effort in, in Buddhism is that it's this, this very delicate balance between discipline and what I might call relaxation. You know, we, we put in this effort, but it's also a relaxing, a, a letting go, a letting be. You know, it's a surrender. That is also an aspect of right effort when we sit down to meditate. So an example of, of the kind of, of alchemy that I'm, I'm talking about here can be found in the Anguttara Nikaya. That is the, uh, the numer- numerical discourses of the Buddha. Some of you might be familiar with that. And in the numerical discourses, there's the, the Book of Sixes. And in there, there's a passage to Mahanama. And in that, the, the Buddha is, is talking to someone from the, the Sakyam clan and this, this person, Nahanama uh, asks, you know, for someone who's, who's tasted the, the fruit, you know, how, how does one then live? And so really he's asking about, very likely, someone who's a Sotapanna, someone who's, who's reached the first stage of enlightenment, the stream enter. So how does a, str- a stream enter live? You know, how, how does a stream enter practice? And the Buddha responds that such a person often lives and And reflects on these six things, and so he he gives these series of six reflections, uh, reflecting on the Buddha, reflecting on the Dhamma, reflecting on the sangha, reflecting on virtue, reflecting on generosity, and reflecting on the devas or devas deities and uh, and so the sixth one often seems weird to to Westerners, but when you read that one he 's actually getting at. Uh, the belief in Buddhism that there there is rebirth and that all the devas that exist, all of these deities, are really small gods. You know, they're, they're just sentient beings that had good enough karma or kamma to be born in in one of these heaven realms. And so, the contemplation for that is, well, you know, I I myself have have lived am living a, a virtuous life, the kind that you know, these gods themselves had lived to reach those heavens. And so it's, it's, it's evening the, the playing field there. But I, what I will do for you guys right now is, is read the passage that is in regard to reflecting the Dhamma. And so if you end up reading this passage for yourselves, and it's, it's very accessible at this point. Uh, you can buy the book like, like I did. And it's like that big, which is why I didn't bring it today. It's on my phone there's also places you can find it online. A lot of people like Access to Insight. Uh, I like Sutta Central. These are all websites you can find. Sutta Central is really good. I think it... I'm trying to remember which venerable is running that site right now. And he just did a big overhaul. But yeah, if you go to suttacentral.net, that's a great site. And, and a lot of the translations are on there. But the one I'm going to be reading for you is the one that Bhikkhu Bodhi translated in his book uh, on the numerical discourses. And so the, the Buddha says. Again, Mahanama, a noble disciple recollects the Dhamma thus. The Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable, to be personally experienced by the wise. When a noble disciple recollects the Dhamma, on that occasion, his mind is not obsessed by lust, hatred, or delusion. On that occasion, his mind is simply straight, based on the Dhamma. A noble disciple whose mind is straight gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the Dhamma, gains joy connected with the Dhamma. When he is joyful, rapture arises. For one with a rapturous mind, the body becomes tranquil. One tranquil in body feels pleasure. For one feeling pleasure, the mind becomes concentrated. This is called a noble disciple who dwells unaffiliated amid an afflicted population. As one who has entered the stream of the Dhamma, he develops recollection of the Dhamma. And I find a few things beautiful about this passage. Firstly, that the Dhamma is directly visible. When we begin turning inward and investigating dukkha for ourselves, we find it. And in seeing it, you know, we have these these three marks of existence uh, in in Theravada Buddhism of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. These become readily apparent when we begin investigating the contents of our mind, the contents of, of our body when we apply an intimate awareness to ourselves, when we investigate, we see these things. They are directly visible. It's not that we have to learn it and trust it by by faith. We can see. So to inviting one to come and see, applicable. applicable, I love, because when we see these things, we now then in the present moment have a choice. And the Buddha in another discourse talks about this, that when we begin investigating our our attitudes about things, then we have that freedom to look at those actions that cause more suffering and those actions that alleviate suffering, and we have that choice. Over time, what I've found is that the, the pause that we need between those choices becomes less and less. When we first start, we might have to recollect, and, and we might have to become mindful. And it might take a few minutes to really, or even days, sometimes to, to undo some of those knots and, and then be, be able to act in a more skillful way. Over time, that change, that, that flip of the switch, seems to happen almost instantaneously. Now, I'm sure if, if you looked at the process, you could stretch it out and see all of the, all of the steps in that change, but from the outside, we see that rather than responding with hatred and then having to step back and respond again with kindness, we, from the outside, seem to respond directly with kindness. On the inside, maybe some other things are happening. Maybe there is that that urge, there's an arising of that sensation of, of hatred, the consciousness, hatred consciousness comes up but then we can make that change. Over time, it seems to just be this little puff of smoke, and before anyone can even see that it's there, it's already been blown away by the wind, and all that's there is the kindness. And that's one of the ways I've seen this path to be directly applicable, in that we we find something that we can do here and now. We also see here that this is something personally experienced by the wise. For me, this means that as we practice, these truths not only become more apparent, but they also become fuller. We begin to see all the aspects of these truths. Intellectually, early on, we can understand these concepts in Buddhism. You know, it only takes maybe an afternoon to start hearing some of these terms and intellectually agree with them, like, yeah, suffering, okay, and, you know, these Brahma Bihada, you know, these make sense, you know, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, all sounds good. But as we continue with the path, as our wisdom grows, the way we think about these ideas and the way we apply them to our lives has, it just it has a different feeling to it that I've found. One of the reasons I wanted, as a child, to escape my reality so deeply was because I just had a lot of anger sometimes too. And you know, some of it might have been about my my body issues and the glasses, things like that. Various other things going on in my life. You know, we could dissect that for a long time. You know, but I, I had this this anger in me, and what I've seen through my my time practicing Buddhism is the way my relationship to anger continues to change. Intellectually, of course, very early on in my studies, I learned how anger and hatred can be so damaging. You know, we hear from the Buddha that it's like picking up a hot coal, and you're you're trying to throw it at someone else, you end up burning yourself way before you even get a chance to throw it at them. Anger, hatred, it, it damages us, it does us harm. It increases our suffering of course, it can also cause suffering for others. It often does. But you know, we forget that aspect of it because sometimes you know, anger can actually feel sort of good. It feels justified, maybe even righteous sometimes. But you know, anger and hatred, especially the hatred aspect of it, uh, in my experience, has never really been a, a good, wholesome feeling. And I keep seeing the way that my responses to various things that happen in my life are changing. How that that process, where maybe it would take me a, like a couple weeks to get over something, uh, it happens quicker now. Sometimes it's hours. Sometimes it's minutes. Sometimes I can't even break up those segments of time. It just seems like a spontaneous kindness arises. And I, and I love those moments. Uh, recently, something like that happened where my, uh, my uh, apartment leasing office had posted a notice on our door because... We had forgotten to turn in our proof of renter's insurance when it had been renewed. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a common thing. It happens. But I don't remember having had a phone call. I just saw the notice on the door that said, hey, if you don't turn this in in three days, you know, you're evicted. And that seemed really harsh. Like, why didn't you guys call first? And so I got, not like, like for me, worked up now. But, you know, on the outside, no one would even notice I was worked up. But I just kept thinking about it every time I would look over at my desk and see that notice. Like, why... Didn't they call? Like, why just? Why bring out the big guns first? And like, I can't understand. And it just oh, And then I would forget about it. And like, you know, my wife and I were watching TV and look at that. And then we'd do something else. And then I look back at my desk and ah. And you know, I, I dealt with it that morning. I walked into that office, and I I was expecting to have some words with them, you know. And I and I go in there and you know they're just opening their they're just opening up the office like I was the first guy in there and they're still setting things up and they, they look at me and smile like oh hi. And, you know, I saw that and, you know, it's these young kids, this isn't their career, they're just working here at a leasing office. And uh, they probably didn't even know who I was, which apartment I was in, and it had nothing to do with me. I had made something impersonal into something personal. And how often do we do that? And, uh, and so I saw them and I'm like, you know what, I don't want to mess up their day. Here's, here it is, guys. Oh, great, we'll put this in your file. And that was it. And I thought, like, wow, like, that, I could have made a really bad morning for all of us. <laughs> for over nothing. But what I liked is, is the, is the change that happened clearly not the night before when I I kept, I kept thinking about it a few times and probably thought about it like five times. You know, I'm, I'm maybe exaggerating a little bit, but definitely it was on my mind and I expected to say something. But when I saw their faces and I saw their kind smiles, it was just gone. All, All the emotion that I had invested, the, 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 attachment I had had to this narrative, this story I'd created, was also gone. Now, it turns out a few days later, it, it was even better that I hadn't said anything because uh, my wife said, hey, I, I, I realized I had a missed call from a couple days back from the leasing office. Hey, did you take care? Are you serious? Like, they called? <laughs> like, the whole reason I'd even been worked up in the first place was also just more Delusion. It was fantasy that had been created by my mind. It was not based in reality. They had still done all the things they needed to do, right? They called, waited a couple days, nothing happened. Policy says put a notice on their door. Notice doesn't mean anything so long as you actually follow through with it. And so I think back to how I would have reacted in the past when I was younger, let's say in my early 20s. I would have walked in there and uh, I wouldn't have really paused. And I wouldn't probably have bothered to look at their faces and really see them as human. To see my interconnectedness with them. To see how, how they might have the same reactions, the same feelings. I would have just blown up at them. Like, how dare you? And I can't believe it. And, and they would have been really confused. And they would have felt really bad. And they might have become defensive. And it might have escalated. And then I would have a bad relationship with the people who run the leasing office at my apartment, at my apartment complex. All of that from one silly little emotion like, like anger, right? One silly little story I'd created that had nothing to do with reality. But there was that change that was possible, and I attribute it to, to my practice of meditation and following the Eightfold Path. And being able to take those moments to to pause and investigate, to see, to really look at all of the things that are happening with all of us. And that's why I think that Buddhism is so much about the relationships we have with other beings and with the world and with ourselves. You know, people want Buddhism to do a lot of things, maybe things that it can't possibly do. And I think the, the Buddha anticipated this when he talked about the two arrows, and I've been thinking about this more and more. Even then, even now, my, my understanding of, of, that, of that connection is, is deepening as well, because in that first arrow, we have all the things that, that can really bother us, like old age and sickness and death, a whole lot of other things outside of our sphere of influence. All the, the, the factors and contributors to our lives that we cannot interact with. And then we have this this second arrow, and that one is our relationships to all the things that are in the first. And if that's the part we can change, our relationships, our relationship to old age, our relationship to sickness, our relationship to death, and our relationship to greed and hatred and delusion. For me, that, that does feel very magical, you know? I, I had wanted magic my, my whole life and, and here it was right in front of me this whole time. The magic of, of this very moment, the magic of our interactions with each other, the alchemy of the Eightfold Path in that it can produce these great transmutations turning lead into gold. You know, we can view hatred and delusion and greed in that way as turning lead into gold. Some people get get rubbed the the wrong way sometimes by, by this interpretation of Buddhism because there's a lot of emphasis on the perfection of self. And we need to have the right relationship with perfection as well. You know, that it is a process and that we're always... Uh, starting where we are. And I'm not definitely not the first one to say that. But it's important. It's, 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 a, it's a true statement that what's happening right now, this is our work. This is our path. What's happening in this moment. Our relationship to this moment matters. Finding the magic in it is also highly important. That reality itself can be something worth enjoying. The present moment. You know, when, when we look at the present moment, we can see that you know uh, our minds might, might label it as good, as bad, as neutral, and, uh, and, and base our understanding of the reality on those judgments, on those labels. I've been thinking a lot lately about how we deal with those neutral moments. I think Probably in in the past ten years or so, certainly as technology has been advancing, we've we've found less tolerance for those neutral moments, the the bored moments. I've been thinking a lot lately about how even sometimes I get sucked into that. You know, if I'm a, if I'm in a boring situation where not a whole lot's going on, if I'm in a line at the DMV or something, I might pull out that phone, and start seeing what games I have on there, what's happening on Facebook, you know, and then. Now, on top of it, like I'm, I'm running a, a website and a podcast, so then I have even more excuses to see what's happening. Like, hey, what's happening with my website? How many hits did I get today? Like, any of that matters, you know? But we can tap into what's happening in our bodies, in our minds. Investigate the sense doors. Find the magic that's there. And, and I don't mean that in any kind of, like, Rose-colored glasses sense of the word, you know, it, it's not—it's not this um, kind of like positivism. It's not like you know, the glass is always half full, guys. You know, it—it's that maybe there's something important that we can learn about ourselves in these neutral moments, and in the bad moments, and in the good moments, all the moments of our days, that we can look into them. And be captivated. I think that kind of mentality helps with something like mindfulness, to really be interested in what's happening with you. I find that even though, on the outside, some people view Buddhism as a like a, a nihilistic religion. You know, they, they, they you know if, if you even view it as a religion, I happen to, but uh, a path, let's say you know, they, they view it as, as sometimes a very negative path because we're all, always talking about suffering. We're always talking about, like, what a terrible place samsara is. And when you read the, the Buddha's teachings, sanksada is just what it is. The whole point is that the good and bad labels we put on are our own devices. The world just has its own nature, and we're always expecting it to be different. When we look at desire in Buddhism, it couldn't possibly be a nihilistic path because the Buddha says the desire not only affects the desire for existence, there's also the desire to not exist. And so we see that in all the, the, the permutations of desire, that's the real problem. That's what leads to rebirth when we look at the causal links, when we look at, it, at dependent origination. It's really desire for things to be different than they are, different than the nature of this world that causes a lot of our dukkha. So maybe if we have a kinder and gentler attitude to this, samsara maybe if we see the magic in all of our moments, the magic becomes alive. Magic becomes a reality that we can experience here and now. And when I think back to all the spells and rituals and ceremonies that, that I did as a teenager to try to change my reality, I see now that you know, they had you know, uh, very little effect on me. Now, for other people, maybe it, it does something for them. I, I really can't, can't speak to that. But for me, what I found in Buddhism... And what I continue to find every day in Buddhism is so much more than, than anything else I, I've ever experienced. Because rather than needing reality to be different, I can find a deep appreciation for the reality that exists right now. Back at IBMc my My temple, I, I gave a talk on cultivating reverence, and uh, I can tell that by the title, most people were like eh, i don 't really want to look at that because my hits on that one in particular were really low, uh, and I think it 's because for people reverence means something like worship, and I was trying to actually break up that that notion and and look at reverence in its other meaning, which is to highly value something, to see the true value of something. And so for me, that's one of the words I love to use in thinking about this present moment and thinking about the reality we're living in right now, to hold it with reverence. I love the way that sounds. I, I hope for, the, for some of you it, re- it resonates as well, that we can have a reverential quality to our meditation, reverential quality to the way we live our lives. And even to the suffering that we find there, because at, at the very least, it's an, it's an opportunity to investigate our attachments and our aversions, investigate our delusions, and increase our understanding, increase our compassion, increase our wisdom. So I, I think that's, that's it for me. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this talk very helpful. And if not, that's okay. I hope you found it entertaining. Thank you.